So a month or so ago, Ben texted me, asked me if I'd be up for preaching a sermon on worship. I immediately said yes, knowing that if I took any time to think about it, I would psych myself out and say, no, I'm busy, I'm scared, I don't want to do it. So I'm here and I'm doing it, and I'm, I'm really grateful and really excited to be able to talk to you guys about something that's dear to my heart and dear to God's heart. Worship is a topic that's way too big for us to cover this morning, but I'm hoping we can discover or recover something fresh about the way we relate to God. So keep your ears open for something new or something that you remember believing or knowing at some point, and I pray and I hope that something is sparked in you and that we learn to worship Jesus together this morning. I'm going to start by talking about what worship is and what worship isn't. And then I'm going to trace the story of worship from creation to the fall to redemption to restoration, kind of echoing um, the path that Ben took yesterday in talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Before I do that, let's pray together. Jesus, we're here for you this morning. And we are just so struck by this fact that nothing can separate us from you, God, not our sin, because Jesus paid the cost and price for us. Not our doubt, because you are who you are, no matter what we think or do. Nothing can separate us from you, God. We pray that your spirit would be with us, your presence would be with us, and we would be aware of you, your character, your personality, and your will this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was preparing for this sermon, I immediately realized something kind of funny that I never thought about before, and that is that worship is actually really hard to define. Wrapping it in a snappy, one-sentence definition feels impossible to me. Every time I tried to do it, I added a caveat, and then another caveat, and then another caveat, until it didn't feel like a definition at all. With that in mind, I just want to start with a list of things that worship is. Worship is a reordering of our affections. Worship is a prioritization of our desires. Worship is acknowledgement. Worship is admiration. Worship is adoration. Worship is fascination. Worship is confidence. The problem with divining worship is that it has so many cultural connotations, loose meanings, partial meanings, shades of meaning that just explain part of what it really is. It really takes time to think about what worship is. The most obvious example of this is, is when we talk about music as worship, right? It's a partial meaning. I think when we pause and think about it, we all understand that music itself is not worship, right? We get that. But the habit of using the two words interchangeably, music and worship, it's so common that it's worth reminding ourselves, music is not worship. Maybe you've never heard that before. Music is not worship. Here's why. Music is external. Music is something we make. Music is something we do. It isn't worship. It's an expression of worship, right? It seems like a small nuance. Is it worship or is it an expression of worship? But that, that line that divides the two is the key to what I'm going to talk about this morning. And it's the key to our understanding of what worship is. Right out of the gate, I want to draw a clear line between the substance of worship and the expression of worship. They're both vital for us. They're both required by God. But a clear dividing line is crucial. Music is not worship. Worship is the inward adoration of God in our hearts. Music is the outward expression of that adoration. Prayer is not worship. Worship is our confidence in God's power. 
Prayer is the articulation of that confidence. Reading the Bible is not worship. Worship is our desire to know the heart of God, and reading his word is the result of that desire. Serving the church is not worship, but working hard is not worship, but giving money is not worship, but you get the point. See, worship has two parts. Believing what God is worth internally and giving him what he's worth externally. Internal belief followed by external behavior. Inward affection followed by outward action. Private posture followed by public practice. Soul-level desire followed by surface-level deeds. A change that happens deep within the heart before it comes out of the mouth. Psalm 19 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, both. Throughout the Bible, we constantly see these two distinct areas, the heart and the mouth, the things we believe and the things we do, what we prize privately and what we portray publicly, what happens in our heart and what comes from our mouth. They're different, but they're interconnected and interwoven. The one affects the other, and there's a specific flow or a specific direction to the way that they're connected, internal and then external, inward and then outward, private, then public, soul level, then surface level, in the heart, then out of the mouth. Jesus says in Luke, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It starts in the heart. So worship is first and foremost believing what God is worth, and then letting that belief overflow from the hidden place in your heart to the visible stuff of your daily life, and that might be music. You might not like music, I don't know doesn't matter. (laughs) I want to take that definition, starting inward, going outward. I want to take it through these four big chapters of redemptive, redemptive history, the great biblical narrative of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Where does worship fit into creation? How is worship affected by our sin? What does Jesus and his work on the cross say about our worship? And what is the role of Worship in the new heaven and the new earth. Part one, worship is created by God. We are created and called to worship. But first of all, we only exist because God wants us to exist. Do you ever think about that? It seems like a simple concept, but it is really mind-boggling. As humans, we take ourselves for granted. Of course we exist, right? We can't imagine a world where we aren't here at the center of it all. <laughs> But God, who lacked nothing, chose to create humanity for one reason, that we would worship him. A.W. Tozer says it like this, God made everything for a purpose, and the purpose in making man was to have somebody capable, properly, and sufficiently to worship him. When we think of Genesis 1, we think of God creating the sun and the moon and the stars and the water and the animals. We think of God creating man and woman in his image. But why? God could have created anything, and perhaps more startling is the idea that God could have created nothing and existed in perfect unity and glory forever. Why did he create people? Because he wants us. He wants our attention, our adoration, our fascination, our worship. St. Augustine says it like this, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So worshiping God alone and ordering the affections of our hearts according to his character, his will, is how life is supposed to be. It is the full life. It is the abundant life, the the life we were meant to live. 
We are created and called to worship. Worship is our purpose. It is part of our DNA. That's how worship relates to creation. God created worship, and he created us to worship. But we all know what happens next. Part two, worship is corrupted by sin. Our fallen nature co-ops and counterfeits our worship. Satan shows up in the garden with one goal in mind, to remove God from the rightful throne in the heart of man. But his plan was never to get us to stop worshiping. This is really important. His plan was never to get us to stop being worshipers. Worship is in our nature. It's part of us. So instead of destroying our worship or removing our worship or stealing our worship, the sin that Satan introduces at the fall co-ops and counterfeits our worship. This is what I mean. He offers us two alternatives to the true worship of the true God. And they're called idolatry and religion. Sin co-ops worship by changing the object of our ultimate satisfaction from our creator who's worthy of that position to some other created thing that is not worthy of that position. That's what we call idolatry. Sin also counterfeits worship by changing the method of our worship from genuine heart-level glorification of God to the superficial choreography of empty ritual. That's what we call religion. Idolatry and religion are the two primary obstacles to worshiping God. But those words, idolatry and religion, they carry so much weight historically and culturally that it can be hard for me to identify with them. I don't know if you feel the same way. When you, when you hear the word idolatry, when you hear the word religion, I catch myself thinking that idolatry is so bad that it can't possibly be a problem for me. I catch myself thinking that religion is so harmless that it can't possibly be a problem for anyone. Maybe you've had similar thoughts. I want to take a minute to unpack what these words actually mean. Idolatry falls short in its object. Religion takes a shortcut in its method. Idolatry is our worship heading in the wrong direction, right? Religion is our worship starting in the wrong place and going nowhere. The idol worshiper has dirty hands. The religious person has clean hands and a dirty heart. Let's start with idolatry. Idolatry actually follows the pattern of worship that we established earlier. It's an inward affection followed by an outward action. But idolatry's trap is to give us the ultimate affection for the wrong thing. And because the interior act of worship is pointed in the wrong direction, the exterior symptoms of that worship are misguided. And idolatry never brings the abundant life that comes from true worship. It's hurtful to others. It's harmful to ourselves. And most importantly, it's offensive to God. This is what Tozer says in the book, Pursuit of God, about misplaced worship. Before the Lord God made, upon, made man upon the earth, he first prepared for him by creating a world of useful and pleasant things for his sustenance and delight. In the Genesis account of creation, those things are called things. They were made for man's uses but they were, never, they were meant always to be external to the man and subservient to him. In the deep heart of the man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, without a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But sin has introduced complications and made those very gifts of God the potential source of ruin to the soul. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended, God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset 
by the monstrous substitution. That's the fall. That's idolatry. According to the Bible, anything we worship other than God himself is an idol. Idolatry is centering our attention and our affection on something smaller than God. And this is important. In fact, most idols are good things. Most idols are good things in our lives that we turn into ultimate things, things that take God's place as we unconsciously depend on them to give our lives meaning, to give our lives security. We often think of idolatry as the exaltation of blatantly wrong things. But the reality is that all Satan wants for us to do is worship that something that isn't Jesus. He whispers to us, worship your church, worship your ministry, worship the act of serving, worship marriage, worship family, worship the way that Jesus makes you feel. Worship absolutely anything that isn't Jesus. Worship is about priority. A good way to determine what you're worshiping is to ask yourself what directs traffic in your heart. What's the thing that occupies the number one place in your soul and it permits things to come into your life and it demands that things leave your life? Do you worship your reputation? Do you worship your safety? Do you worship your children? Do you worship your spouse? So there's not a spectrum of how worthy something is of our worship. This is the test. Is it Jesus? He simply doesn't share his throne. We invite him to be the second or third or fourth most important thing in our lives. He simply rejects the invitation. We may like to imagine that he's there alongside of all of our other little G gods, but he's not. His, his view of idolatry is clear. In Isaiah, he says, I'm the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Do you worship your reputation? Do you worship your safety? Do you worship your children? Do you worship your spouse? What keeps you up at night? When you put Jesus on the throne, you're proclaiming that he is your reputation, that he has purchased your eternal safety, that he has given you your children, that he loves your spouse more than you do, and that you can sleep well knowing that he is good and his love endures forever. Amen? Sermon on the Mount, Jesus directly speaks to our tendency to elevate things above God our compulsion to create idols out of the gifts he has given us. He talks about all the little basic pieces of life, food, drink, money, shelter, clothing. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. So idolatry is seeking all these things. All the things that will be added unto us when we seek Jesus, idolatry is seeking those things, leaving Jesus behind. It's a recipe for chaos confusion, anxiety, emptiness. And that's the danger of idolatry. That's the first obstacle to worship that we inherited from Adam. The other one is religion. Idolatry followed the pattern of inward affection and outward action, but it got the object of our worship wrong. Now religion takes that pattern and it just skips the first step. By completely disregarding the inward aspect of worship, religion's trap is to carry out the expression of worship and ignore the substance of worship. It's a shortcut. It's only external. It's only outward. It's only public. It's only surface level. It's out of the mouth, but never in the heart. And like idolatry, it never brings the abundant life that comes with true worship. 
Religion replaces authentic soul-deep desire for God with skin-deep participation in activities and programs. Jesus doesn't condemn religious rituals, and neither will I. He does condemn empty religious rituals. Ritual for the sake of ritual, what we would call going through the motions. There's nothing that he hates more than exterior worship that is merely a counterfeit, a facade, a mask. God constantly calls out the people of Israel for this kind of worship. Jesus constantly calls out individuals for this kind of worship. It's not an Old Testament problem. It's not a New Testament problem. It's a human race problem. Religion can be tricky because it looks a lot like worship. The key differences between religion and true worship, the distinction that makes them different, happens behind the scene. So it can be hard to identify. It appears to be real worship, but something's off. And, and it's, hard to, um, it's hard to really explain. I, I've been trying to think of a, a thought picture, and I came up with something, and you'll have to bear with me. If it makes sense to you, take it with you. And if, if you get like, whoa, what are you talking about? I ran it by Bethany. She gave me the thumbs up. So, here it goes. This is the difference between religion and worship. Religious, religion looks like worship in the same way that a scarecrow looks like a farmer. It's really more of a passable forgery. So just stick with me on this. A scarecrow has the same shape and form as a farmer. The same basic appearance. It's got two legs. It's got two arms. It's got a head. It's even dressed up like a, a, a farmer. It's got a flannel shirt, overalls, little hat, maybe a pipe. Or is that a snowman? I don't know. <laughs> From far away enough, the silhouette of a scarecrow on the horizon looks a lot like a man walking around the field, right? The whole point of the scarecrow is to look enough like the real thing to get the job done. Let's talk about religion. Religion looks a lot like worship, but only kind of. It has the same shape and the same form. It has the same basic appearance. Church attendance, moral living, song singing, Bible quoting. From far enough away, the silhouette of religious ceremony against the backdrop of immoral culture looks a lot like true worship. The point of religion is to look enough like the real thing to get the job done. The big difference is the scarecrow's job is to scare crows. And religion's job is to please God and it doesn't get the job done. When you get close enough, religion is just a cheap imitation. The difference between religion and worship is like the difference between the scarecrow and the real, living, breathing farmer. The scarecrow stares expressionless forever. The farmer lives and works and dreams. He's alive. He breathes fresh air. He tastes delicious food. He enjoys good drinks. He loves his wife. He cares for his kids. He laughs with his friends. The religion is stale and dead inside. It is stuffed full of morality like a scarecrow is stuffed full of straw. And true worship is alive and well inside, full of flesh and blood, and brings the abundant life with it. God has as much appreciation and love in his heart for religion as the farmer's wife and children do for the scarecrow. The farmer's children don't accept the scarecrow as their father. They don't play with him. They don't laugh with him. They see that he's a sham, dressed up like a man, but completely lifeless. 
The birds are fooled by the illusion of the scarecrow, but people aren't. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about religion. God doesn't accept religious activity. He isn't impressed by it. He isn't delighted in it. He sees that it is a sham dressed up like worship, but completely lifeless. People are fooled by the illusion of religion, but God isn't. This is perfectly captured in what Jesus says to the religious, religious leaders of his day. Of all the people that Jesus interacts with, these are the ones whose lives are morally impeccable, spotless reputations, impressive behavior. This is what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. And that's the essence of religion. Correctly practicing the things of God without ever correctly positioning ourselves at his feet. Invoking him without enthroning him. Encanting his name with our mouths without ever inviting his personality with our hearts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a bold claim about the difference between internal and external. You've heard this verse a thousand times. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What does that mean for us? If I pray an elegant prayer, but never put my confidence in God's character, I'm not worshiping, I'm talking to myself. If I go to a church service, but never draw near to God, I'm not worshiping, I'm part of a club. If I compose a compelling sermon with my intellect, but never enjoy the actual praise of God, I am not worshiping, I'm making noise. If I sing a powerful song with my mouth, but never exalt God in my heart, I'm not worshiping, I'm performing spiritual karaoke. This theme of the mouth and the heart is woven throughout the Old and New Testament. The book of Isaiah, God's talking about the people of Israel. He says, they draw near with their mouth and they honor me with their lips when their hearts are far from me. And there's another even more shocking passage in Matthew where Jesus explains this. He explains that not everyone who says with their mouth externally, Lord, Lord, or practices all of the other outward expressions of worship will be welcomed into the eternal kingdom of God. There's some people who say all the right things. There's some people who even do all the right things. Jesus will say, I never knew you. Your actions looked like worship. Your words sounded like worship, but you never really worshiped me. Go away. And God, I pray not one person in this room will hear those words. That echoes what we see in the Old Testament. Man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. What makes religion so dangerous? Idolatry and religion are both poisonous to the soul. They destroy our relationship with God. But Jesus' words to the religious person were so harsh compared to his words to the idolater. To the woman who made an idol out of relationships and had five husbands to show for it, Jesus offers an invitation. He says, I can see that you're hurting. I know that you're thirsty. The fountain you have been drinking from will always leave you thirsty. Come and drink from my living water and never be thirsty again. An invitation. But to those who practice morality externally and have no love for God in their heart, Jesus lays a smack down. He says, I feel bad for you. You are blind. There is nothing good inside of you. And this is a nail in the coffin. He says, in fact, you're the kind of people that are going to kill me eventually. It 
So we're created and called to worship. Our ultimate purpose is to worship him forever. But we just can't do it on our own because of the fall. We just can't do it right. One day we worship idols. The next day we perform empty spiritual rituals because of our sin nature. Our affections are misplaced by idolatry and masqueraded by religion. Part three, worship is completed in Jesus Worship is created by God. Worship is corrupted by sin, and worship is completed in Jesus. Jesus corrects and commands our worship. All of history is this back-and-forth struggle between man and God, and worship is at the center of the struggle. God creates a way for us to worship him. He gives us everything we need to do it. Man overcomplicates, misunderstands, completely ignores this calling. God gives his people a garden and one rule. His people break the rule. God delivers his people from slavery. His people enslave themselves to idols. God gives his people blueprints for a temple where they can worship him. His people use the temple as a business opportunity. God instructs his people on how to be holy. His people look clean on the outside but are filthy on the inside. And this is exactly why we need Jesus. And this is exactly when Jesus arrives. Hallelujah. Everything we've talked about this morning culminates in Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's only about Jesus. We were created to worship him. The fall robbed us of our ability to worship him. And in a shocking turn of events, he came to earth, corrected our artificial worship with his teaching, commanded our authentic worship with his actions, and completed our inadequate worship on the cross. God didn't lower his standards for our worship. God never lowers his standards. Jesus simply fulfilled every single requirement that God has once and for all. He's the way back to God. And John forging the same conversation that Jesus had with the woman who made an idol of relationships. They start talking about the temple. She could tell Jesus was special. She didn't know he was the Messiah, but she knew he knew something. So she, she asks him, which temple is right? Is it the one in Jerusalem or the one in Samaria? See, she wanted to know more about the particulars and logistics of her external worship rituals, her people's worship traditions. Under the old covenant, mankind's relationship to God was centered about, around a very specific list of things that needed to be done. Certain times, certain places. Following the list of requirements was the only way to draw near to God. It was the only way to be accepted by God. It was the only way to worship God. And so she asks him, Are me and my ancestors doing worship right? And this is how he responds. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When he says the hour is coming, he means a moment in time. He means a specific split second in time where a seismic shift will happen in the way that man can relate to God. And that moment is Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross. Tozer says, While the tabernacle stood, only the high priest could enter through the veil of the Holy of Holies. That but once a year, with blood that he offered for the sins of of himself and the sins of his people. It was the last veil which was rent when our Lord gave up the ghost on Calvary. The rending of this veil opened the way for every worshiper in the world to come by the new and living way straight into the divine presence. With the coming of Christ, all of God's children gain equal access to God through him. Worship becomes a matter of the heart. Worship is now directed by truth rather than ceremony. 
And this was earth-shattering change for the people of God, for the way that God relates to man. Suddenly, all meats were clean. Every day was holy. All places were sacred. Every, every lineage was welcome. Every act was acceptable to God. The sacredness of times and places was revealed to be a dim twilight necessary to illuminate our woeful inability to be holy. And it all faded completely before the radiant sunlight of spiritual worship in Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die on the cross? It was to make worshipers out of enemies. Is that he might take those whose backs were to him and turn their faces to him. God wants you to be regenerated in order that you might be capable of worship. And the gospel, the good news that Jesus brings is really just this. Now you can be what you were created to be. Now you can worship. Part four, worship is constant in eternity. This is where we stand today on the side, on the other side of the cross. Believing in the atoning work of Jesus. Belonging to God because of the ransom that was paid for us. We're delivered. Now that we can worship God, now that we can approach his throne confidently by the blood of Jesus, we will spend eternity worshiping God like we were designed to do. We will finally arrive at the place we've all secretly dreamed, a place that we have caught a glimpse of from time to time, right? We see it in Scripture, Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the, the lamp is its, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Isaiah, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow shall flee away. Throughout his writing, C.S. Lewis talks about an inconsolable longing in the human heart for which we know not what. A haunting sense of longing which he said touched him throughout his life. Elements, it has elements of nostalgia and joy, but it also has an intense awareness of missing something. He called it a golden echo. These stabs of joy and longing are pointing us to something. Lewis describes that something as a deeper spiritual world, the world we ought to have been born in, our home. This world is not my home. I'm here but for a moment. It's all I've ever known, but I'm bound for glory. Love that song. There's this beautiful thread that runs throughout God's story with man that I want to pick out and highlight as I close this morning. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we see the story of God delivering his people from slavery into freedom, into the promised land. He brought them out of Egypt. They were being pursued by the armies of Egypt. They were trapped against the impassable Red Sea. We know the story. And what does God do? God ripped the sea in half and said, come be with me. Come out of slavery into freedom. Thousands of years later, in the life and death of Jesus, we see the story of God delivering his people from slavery into freedom. 
into the promised land of eternal life. We were plagued by religion and idolatry. We were trapped against the impassable sea, not of water, but of sin. And what did God do? God ripped the veil in half. God ripped his son in half and said, come be with me. Come out of slavery into freedom. The Israelites' slavery was literal. And God parted the literal sea to deliver them. Our slavery is spiritual. And God parted the spiritual sea to deliver us. And there's one more thing coming. Something that we all long for. Something that my heart aches for. Revelation 6. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. God ripped the sea in two so the Israelites could belong to him geographically. Chosen and set apart physically. He ripped the veil in two so that we could belong to him judicially with none of the previous separation caused by sin. And one glorious day, he will rip the sky in two so that we can belong to him experientially, literally, and completely with none of the confusion and chaos and death and disease that comes as a symptom of living in this broken world. We'll have perfectly ordered hearts forever. We will be perfectly capable of worship forever. We will be eternal lives fulfilling their eternal purpose. As I was thinking about this thread of of God making a way, of God tearing the sea, of God tearing the veil, of God tearing the sky for us, I started thinking to myself, maybe I'm making too much of this. Maybe maybe there's a connection there that's not really there. And I was reading in Revelation this week, and this blew my mind. This, I've never seen this before. This is in Revelation. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they're singing a song, and it says what song they're singing, and the song is called the Song of Moses. This is incredible. It's a vision of what eternity looks like. And John hears this familiar song to any Jew at the time. It's the song of Moses. It's the song that the Israelites sang when they got to the other side of the Red Sea safely. And apparently it's the song we're going to be singing when we pass through into eternity safely. It goes like this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. The Lord has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Understand that you will spend almost all of your existence singing that song or one like it. This part is everything but all we've ever known is creation and the fall. And yeah, we get, a, we get a taste of that redemption in Jesus now, but this world is still so broken and I don't have to explain that to you. You know that. You feel that. So get ready because that's going to be good. And I just want to close with a couple practical pieces. Number one, understand the reason you exist is to worship God. It's not complicated. It's not this big existential crisis. Why are we here? We are here to worship God. Period. Number two, recognize 
and repent of the two obstacles to worship that we talked about when we talked about the fall, idolatry and empty religion. Ask Jesus straight up, is there anything in my life that I'm worshiping when I should be worshiping you? Ask yourself, ask your friends, when I worship publicly, do you see that it's happening because I'm worshiping privately? Or is it just a mask? Number three, pursue a life of true and spiritual worship by inwardly enthroning God before you outwardly exalt him. Number four, develop an appetite for your destiny of worship. Get ready for it. Get used to it. And and the last thing I want to say is if you don't know where to start with this worship thing, I want to just challenge you bow before God this week. I mean physically bow before God this week in the secret place of your life with no audience and with no hesitation fall on your knees in front of God and ask him to reorder your affections. This isn't dogmatic. This isn't prescriptive. This isn't theologically confusing or complicated. If you need a verse, Psalm 95, 6, oh come let us worship and bow down. Bow down before Jesus. Physically and spiritually. As we transition into a time of communion, I'm going to ask the the worship team to join me on stage. Um, It seems necessary for me to talk about communion as a ritual because we just got done talking about outward rituals and what God thinks of them and what he needs from us. So I want to repeat this. Jesus doesn't condemn rituals. He condemns rituals without reverence, service without substance. He actually gave us this ritual right before his death, right before he nullified every other complicated ritual of the old covenant. He gives us one last ritual to end them all. That's communion. And it's so different. The rituals of the Israelites involved complex directions, formulas, timetables, and artifacts. And you've got to get it right. It's the only way. In the work of Jesus, these rituals are over and he leaves us with one simple one, with two ingredients, bread and wine. So pedestrian, so accessible, no golden candlesticks, no perfectly measured rooms, a loaf and a bottle. Every civilization that has ever existed has figured out how to make bread and how to make wine and I think that is so meaningful. Jesus came to give salvation to everyone and communion is the celebration that there's nothing left to do. It is finished. So if you know in your heart that it is finished, that the veil is torn, that you belong to God by the blood of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion uh, during these next few songs that we sing together. And uh, why don't you join me in prayer? You can stand with us. God, indeed, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. First and foremost, God, this morning, we acknowledge that the reason we exist is not for any reason other than to worship you. And God, secondly, we acknowledge that we don't worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped. We can't do it. On our own strength, we find something else to worship 
Jesus, I confess I will find something else to worship before this day is over, and I'm sorry. I just can't worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped. But thank you that you've completed my worship and your work on the cross. Thank you that although my righteousness is like dirty rags, you clothe me. You protect me. You cover me with your grace and with your perfection. God, I pray that you would rip the sky in half. And God, I pray that you would rip the sky in half soon. I want to see you face to face. I want to be with you. I want to worship at your feet, literally. I pray that you would come soon. And that we would be so used to worshiping you in our hearts and with our mouths on earth that as we pass from here into eternity, God, it feels natural. It feels like we're doing what we were created to do, what we've always been trying to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.